from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Five years ago, Joe Weisberg, who used to work for the CIA, co-created The Americans, the FX show set in the 1980s. It's about a pair of Russian spies living as Americans in a suburb of Washington. I was 17 when I joined the KGB. Never had a boyfriend. They put me with you. And then two years ago, back when Donald Trump was merely a contender for the Republican nomination, Joe Weisberg's older brother, the journalist Jacob Weisberg, created a podcast all about it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the Harvey Weinstein type who still has his job, Donald Trump. The creative pursuits of the Weisberg brothers seem to have not much in common. But then came this about Hillary Clinton's missing private emails in July of 2016. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. After that came our intelligence services conclusion that Russia intervened in the 2016 election in all kinds of ways. So the Weisberg's creative pursuits have lately had a lot in common. The Americans will soon begin its sixth and final season. And Trumpcast is produced by Slate, where Jacob Weisberg serves as chairman and editor-in-chief and where we happen to make this show. So I asked Jacob and his brother Joe to come in to talk about the collision of their fictional and non-fictional creative worlds, the brothers Weisberg. Joe and Jacob, welcome to Studio 360. Thank Thanks, you very Kurt. much. Thanks for getting us together. Uh, this is like a movie. I, I, it's still like the Royal Tannenbaums <laughs> meets uh, Burn After Reading, right? Something um, like the children of the Russian spies uh, in the Americans. You guys were adolescents during uh, the Reagan administration. Your parents were not communist spies, as far as I know. Uh, but they were well-known liberals in Chicago. Your mother, Lois Weisberg, became nationally known after Malcolm Gladwell wrote about her in The Tipping Point. You know, it, it's funny, given your introduction, I mean— Joe solved the problem of how do you rebel against tolerant liberal parents. <laughs> it's very hard to do. But if you join the CIA, you can probably succeed in rebelling even against them. And was that some part of the motivation at 20-whatever you were? I think so. Yeah, not consciously. I think it was unconsciously. But our, our parents were also tricky to rebel against in any way because they were so supportive of, of anything we wanted to do that I think that actually even extended to joining the CIA. I don't I, – my father was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Why don't you go and try that? So he, he couldn't – he didn't really have a problem with it. And I think our mother's only problem with it really was that she was just nervous. It just made her a little worried that I would get hurt or something like that, which probably would have been true of anything I did. Right. You joined the CIA. You're, you're, you're not long out of Yale, where in the 80s and 90s, not many people were joining the CIA out of Yale like they used to. Now, Jacob, I know your career path. You, I started over, working for you. It overlapped with mine <laughs> 20 years ago. But uh, give our listeners the highlight rail of what you've done before you became a media tycoon. I had a long career writing about uh, politics, and I started at The New Republic, where I worked for years as an editor and a writer. 
Then I worked for you at New York Magazine, which was great fun until we both uh, left on short notice uh, unexpectedly in 1996. And then I went to Slate. At some point, I became the editor of Slate. uh, And then at some point, I just became responsible for the whole thing. And now I'm on the business side. So, Joe, while while he's ascending uh, meteorically through the heights of American journalism, you started writing fiction. And then by the time you come up with the Americans, the the Cold War's been over for 20 years or more. Um, the setting and the idea, the premise must have been distant enough at that point that Hollywood would just say, yeah, let's do it, right? That's what I thought. I, I thought exactly that, but I also wasn't sure. Um, I mean, you wanted to make this show about the past, and what's interesting about it is it takes a, it takes a radical, almost shocking view of the past, and then in many ways the present caught up with it, and People took it to be just by implication, having more to say about the present. And I don't know, it just seemed to me your your initial reaction to that happening was, that's not, we don't, don't do that. We don't want the show to be about now. We want it to be about looking back in the 80s with new perspective. Well, that's right. It was, it was really horrifying because the whole, you know, political premise was, let's look at the enemy and humanize them. And we can do that now because they're not the enemy anymore. And two years later, they started to becoming the enemy again. And we were sort of in denial because it happened a little bit slowly. But then they really started to become the enemy again. You couldn't or deny. Or some, very, very good friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, look at a scene from season one of The Americans. This is in 1981, uh, less than two months into the presidency, when uh, right after he's... Uh, the assassination attempt happens. And the Soviet spy couple, played by Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, worry that uh, Alexander Haig, former general, now Secretary of State, uh, who said at the time he was in control here, has the nuclear codes. Philip, can we please move on this now? He's holding a copy of the nuclear football. We need to transmit. All these years, walking these streets, living with these people, you still really don't understand this place. Hay could have 10 nuclear footballs. This still wouldn't be a coup. Really? Yes, really. And if we send that to Moscow, they will go on high alert. And our command control isn't quite state of the art. We will escalate. They will escalate. This thing will spin out of control. So could you please, can you please just try and get yourself in a different way of looking at it for one minute? You think you understand things so much better than I do. Why? Because you look good in an American suit. What? Because everybody loves talking to you because you think like the kids do. No, that's not what I because think. Because I fit in just fine. But I remember where I came from. Not having all of these things. It being about something bigger than just myself. I remember too. That doesn't blind me to what's in front of my face. I know how the Americans do things and Al Haig isn't taking over the government. You don't think they're all about lies and conspiracy like everybody else because they are. Why do you think that they're so different, that they're so pure? I don't. But the last two times our leaders died, our government pretended they weren't dead for weeks. Things are different here. Uh, I love that scene then, and as I'm... I, that plays well after <laughs> now. <laughs> I'm saying, like, you, well, you, you look at this differently three years later. Um, uh, and, and, and by the way, would a KGB agent then, do you think, was that plausible for him to be, hey, America is better than the, the Soviet Union in that way that he's arguing with his wife and mansplaining to her about uh, how, how good America <laughs> is? Of the 10 illegals who uh, were arrested in, in 2010. Which is to say these spies who'd been in the U.S., like your character. Uh, right, exactly, time. exactly. The, the germ of this show. Right, right. You sort of get a little bit of a feeling that the possibility for them to have 
gone somewhat native was certainly there. So I can't really say if it did happen or not, but I, I feel comfortable saying it could have. So on your show, uh, the actors Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese play these two Russian spies who are supposed to pretend to be married as their characters, and then their characters fall in love and have children. But then how meta, th- those actors actually fall in love and in real life become a couple and, and have a kid. Yeah, what are you going to say about that? That's... Uh, that <laughs> I think there's no way to watch the show and not see that there is an incredible chemistry between them. So in a way, it's hard not to wonder if they didn't in real life have that chemistry, would they possibly have that just as actors? I have no answer to that question. But there's something so real between them. Yeah. There was I remember there was one review, I think, from the first season saying this show's really interesting, but the the, the leads just don't have any chemistry. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, let's watch another clip from The Americans. This is from uh, season three, uh, where the Matthew Reese character is posing as this uh, dweeb called Clark who has duped a, a secretary who works at the FBI in FBI counterintelligence, uh, Martha into marrying him and spying for the KGB as well. Who are you, Clark? I'm your husband. The man you married. Who loves you more than you will ever know. Oh, God. What have I done? <gasps> What have I done? Martha, Martha, you, you fell in love. We, we fell in love. I mean, is any of this true? We are what's real. And that's all that matters. We, that's, that is what is true. Uh, That's the great Alison Wright as Martha. And apparently, I heard you say, these kinds of sham marriages that KGB agents did, were there were a few of them. Yeah. The, Not in America, uh, but elsewhere. They, they would actually do this. They would actually uh, seduce women and, on occasion, marry them for their intelligence value. I mean, it, it, you could, you really couldn't make that up. Yeah. That's just too weird. Are all your scripts you, – you, when I talked to you when the show began, you said, oh, no, I'm going to send them all to the CIA. Do you still do that? Yeah, they all go. Have they ever said, no, you don't do this? Uh, occasionally very small, little tiny things. Once years ago on a different project, I sent them something and they said, you can't do this. Whole project is out. It's all classified. And so I was upset. So I wrote back and I said, what's the problem? And they said, here's the problem. And I was like, I literally took out 1% of the project, sent it back, and they said, great, now you can do it. Huh. So I learned from that that they're very easy to work with and deal with. And on this show, it's it's been great. And they've been also very helpful. Like, we need stuff often turned around very fast so that we can film it. They're very helpful with that. They rush stuff for me. It's been great. I suppose they have a department that just does this. Publications Review Board, the PRB. Um, of course they do. <laughs> um, so, uh, Jacob, after, I guess, Joe had done four yeah. seasons, the election's happening— and and you decide uh, early in 2016, right? Like, oh, we should do this 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 regular podcast about Donald Trump. Yeah, we started in March 2016. I'd actually wanted to do it for a while before, but it, we kind of launched it at the point where it looked like Trump had an actual chance of being but nom- nominated. But not wrapped up yet. No, no. I mean, and I thought we would do the show f- until sanity <laughs> reasserted itself and the Republicans nominated Jeb Bush or somebody else. A limited series. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then well, then he got nominated. And, you know, my assumption, my my illusion guess, like, every, like everyone <laughs> else's, was that, well, he would almost certainly lose the 
election and we'd be done in, in, on November 8th, 2016. And I really didn't seriously contemplate the idea that it would go on, but it was the shtick of the show that we would be around as long as he was. So here we are, you know, having done it for later. almost uh, almost two whole years. But, like the athlete who grows the beard. It's like, I'm not cutting my beard. Yeah, exactly. win again. And then like, <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing is, so keeping the show going indefinitely presented a number of problems. Um, one is just immersing yourself in the toxicity of Donald Trump at, at length and how you can keep that from poisoning your life and outlook. And another that that occurred to me pretty early on is that I have to say I find Trump himself very uninteresting. Ronald Reagan was a fascinating character. It's a mystery. You People would be speculating, having interesting theories and ideas about Ronald Reagan until the end of time. Donald Trump, if you've read a couple articles about him and watched him on TV, you've no probably surprises. got him figured out. There's yeah. no mystery. Yeah. There's no surprise. We, we've cracked that case. We, we have a pretty good idea. There are variations, but you, you, you're not going to learn a whole new thing. So how do you keep a show about Donald Trump interesting? Well, the show is very much now about what's swirling around Trump, around Trumpism, around all the issues related to Trump. And you sort of have to go at it orthogonally because a show that just told you what to think about Donald Trump day after day would be both unenlightening and kind of painful to do because you would just be in that place of Donald Trump's mind. Um do you know at what point you first had an episode in which you discussed Russia as its central subject? I do. I think it was in June. So I was on to this subject very early because of a couple people I know, in particular Anne Applebaum, who is a journalist who's been on the show several times, who lives in Europe, uh, is married to the former foreign minister of Poland, and experienced in Poland this version of Russian meddling, hacking, personal attacks through social media a year or two at least before we started to be familiar with that here. And I had her on the show to talk about Eastern Europe and other things, and she said, you're about to experience in this election what we've just been through in Poland. And Putin is, in fact, meddling in this way in elections all over the world. We were on to that story very early, and I got interested in that. And I should say, you know, we wanted to present all sides of that, and right. we had Masha Gessen on the show a couple of times, and Masha Gessen, another journalist I very much admire, has been a big skeptic about the collusion story and about hacking. I want to play a clip of uh, the great Masha Gessen, who grew up in Russia, is, is very much a Russian as well as an American journalist. The story has distracted in some very clear ways from the damage that Trump is doing to this country right now. And, you know, the worst thing about the Trump administration is not that it's talked to Russians. It, even if collusion is proven with beyond a doubt, even if it is proven that um, that collusion had a definitive impact on the outcome of the election, which is extremely unlikely that, that you know, that causal relationship can be shown. Even that, I would argue, is not the worst thing about the Trump administration. And so the fact that that story is consistently more important somehow than than the 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 destruction of the State Department, than the blatant corruption of this administration, than the profound deregulation of everything that's that's going on, to my mind, those things are worse. There's a contrarian uh, <laughs> of you, and of course, the distinction there that perhaps you made shortly after she said that is between political policy with which you disagree and crimes against democracy, right? 
Yeah, I partly agree with Masha and partly disagree. Uh, I agree with her that that people on the left are, are kind of grabbing at this story as a as a kind of silver bullet, both that will free them from Trump and that will show that, you know, he was entirely illegitimate and just to sort of be a way to not deal with anything else about Trump. I agree with her that that's a kind of bad way to relate to the Trump presidency. I don't agree with her that if it's proven that Trump and Putin conspired to steal an election and successfully stole it, that that's not the most important thing about him. If that happened and it's proven, it is the most important thing about him. Now, Joe, uh, I, I understand there's even more brotherly crossover here. There's, there's a lot of Russian spoken on your show. And and, and Masha Gessen uh, consults with you on that? She's the translator for the Americans. Really? So brilliant. you pay her, he gets it for free. That's the way it works, right? <laughs> but I recommended her to Joe. <laughs> Uh, Jacob, you, you also have great bits of satire doing Trumpcast. I want to listen to this piece, which you did uh, after it was reported that uh, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, had referred to President Trump as an effing moron during a meeting. Good afternoon. Some have expressed disappointment that I did not categorically deny calling the president a, quote, moron in my press conference yesterday. I'd like to offer a clear denial now, along with a more complete list of other remarks that have been falsely attributed to me. So I never referred to the president as a, quote, moron, end quote. Nor did I refer to him as a, quote, fucking moron, end quote. I never said that he, quote, wouldn't have lasted a day at Exxon. End quote. I never remarked that he, quote, couldn't find Saudi Arabia on a map, even if that map were only a map of Saudi Arabia. End quote. I never expressed frustration that, quote, all items in the Oval Office have been scaled down to two-thirds normal size so that the president never has to feel as though his hands look small. End quote. I never shouted, quote, enough about the damn electoral map, end quote, after 45 minutes of talking about the electoral map during a security briefing. I never referred to the president as, quote, a butthole's butthole. <laughs> That was by Steve Waltine, who also performed as Rex Tillerson, right? Yeah, that was that's a shtick he's been doing. Um, <laughs> Steve Waltine is a brilliant guy. His day job is writing for the opposition with Jordan Klepper. Um, but I met him when he was still working at Second City in Chicago. And uh, he volunteered to, to start writing these sketches for Trumpcast. And uh, I have to say, they're so delightful. Uh, they are. <laughs> I wondered if, did you have any... Moment of hesitation of, oh, should we combine this f fiction with our serious nonfiction? Not that much because the show is not that well thought through. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted it to be a little bit of a variety show. And, uh, you know, I thought we need a little comedy to lighten the lighten the mood. Well, and you've been doing the, the tweets that John Domenico does, I guess, from the beginning, practically. Yeah, uh, that was the first idea I had for the show because I, I saw a video of this guy who's a Las Vegas impersonator who did this great uh, Donald Trump in this video, which was on Slate, was how this guy, Las Vegas impersonator, sort of 
gets into character, puts on the wig, does this whole thing. And I thought, my God, that guy is good. And I, I literally just called him up out of the blue and said, will you read Trump's tweets for me? <laughs> Every show. Another false story, this time in the failing New York Times, that I watch four to eight hours of television a day. Wrong. Also, I seldom, if ever, watch CNN or MSNBC, both of which are considered fake news. I never watch Don Lemon, who I once called the dumbest man on television. Bad reporting. CNN's slogan is CNN, the most trusted name in news. Everyone knows this is not true, that this could, in fact, be a fraud on the American people. There are many outlets that are far more trusted than fake news CNN. Their slogan should be CNN, the least trusted name in news. <laughs> in addition to being funny, in addition to being funny, it, it reminds you how impossibly, preposterously beyond fiction they are. Yeah, they sound like sketches, yes. right? And those are Trump's verbatim words uh, read in his voice plus 5% right. or 10%. <laughs> All John D. Domenico does is ratchet it up a tiny bit. Yeah. Now whenever I hear Trump, I just hear it in John's voice, yes. which makes it all funny. <laughs> now, now, Joe, when we watched that uh, clip earlier, we all watched it differently in the light of Trump, Russia, present day. Now that people watched the fifth season differently because of that, we'll watch your final season differently because of that. Did it or does it change the way you guys think about and write the show and let's let's not do that because that'll seem like we're referring to this maybe a little we we we're very very good at keeping ourselves in a bubble so that we write the stories and and work on the scripts and and make sure that we don't let what's happening today influence it because anytime we feel like you could feel that sort of cleverness or cuteness of somebody writing with an awareness of modern politics, we think it bumps you out of the story. So we really try to avoid it. No I mean, metafiction. No, exactly. The the only time it, it might influence us, uh, uh, my partner Joel came up with this example, which I thought was a perfect one, that we might have, were Donald Trump not such a important character today, we might have actually had the idea of putting him in the show. I've he would have been like a you perfect, to do that on social media for two years. Yeah, he would have been a perfect period reference. Completely. But we can't put him in the show because— Really? Yeah, we can't put him in the show. There's been reporting that he went to—I didn't—who knew? He went to Moscow in 87. He was trying to build things. The KGB knew of it. You know, he was this swinger with a Czech wife. <laughs> Elizabeth would have slept with him. It would all been great if he weren't—if he had a run what, for now, president. Now you'd be like, oh, those guys are trailing oh. to really make a point about Donald Trump, which, you know, and yeah. then you'd start, then your head would get out of the story. <sighs> Sorry. Can't do it. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, that makes me very sad. But, uh, but I'll, maybe I'll do some fan fiction. <laughs> How about that? I would like that. And when's the final episode of Trumpcast? <laughs> Please, 2020. Yeah. Uh, to January, January 21st, uh, 2021. No, but if not, you'll keep you going. know one thing I've learned from doing the show and just being around politics: stop making the damn predictions. Jacob and Joe Weisberg, uh, this has been a, a great, 
great pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Us too. Thanks, Thanks Kurt. Kurt. Joe Weisberg is the co-creator of The Americans, which begins its sixth and final season on FX on March 28th. Jacob Weisberg is editor-in-chief of The Slate Group and the creator of Trumpcast, on which he alternates hosting duties with Virginia Heffernan and uh, Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 